rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hello everybody, and welcome to episode number 15 of Superman of the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Lindmeyer, and uh, we're just going to jump right into it. We've got some emails to cover, which apparently happens if I try to record a couple of episodes ahead. Apparently, I then have emails to work on. So, uh, first up, we have one from Billy Hogan, who does the Superman Fan Podcast over at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com. And uh, he writes... Charlie, great episode as always. I remember this story from Superman number 240, one of the issues covered in episode 10. My parents bought that for me in a store in Leesburg, Florida way back then. The cover with an anguished Superman holding the newspaper with the headline, Superman Fails, grabbed my attention and I just had to check it out. I never read the rest of the story until sometime in the last decade, when I finally collected the rest of the story from back issue bins. I enjoyed the art. Giordano's inks seemed to modernize Kurt Swan's pencils, which I completely agree with. Uh, Swan has a reputation today of a more laid-back and conservative storytelling style, but he knew how to show action in this issue. He knew how to adapt to changing times when he had to. I appreciated your comments about my podcast. When you mentioned about the reprint issue of, Superman, of Silver Age Superman Stories, one reason you said you wouldn't cover them was because you would be stepping into my territories of work. I know the feeling. After Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor began their From Crisis to Crisis podcast, there were a few times I did episodes from that Superman era that they were covering, and I felt a little self-conscious. With the growth of excellent Superman podcasts, I felt it was a good time to shift my focus to the Silver Age, which is when I began reading comics or looking at them before I could read, in the mid-1960s. You don't need my permission if you want to cover a Silver Age Superman story. Be my guest. Superman belongs to all of us. I listened to both podcasts covering the Golden Age of Superman, Golden Age Superman, and the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and enjoy the different perspectives of the same stories. So if there's a Silver Age Superman story you would like to cover, don't be shy. I'd be interested in what you have to say about it. That's what I enjoy about all of the Superman podcasts. Everything brings a unique perspective about the Man of Steel. Keep up the good work. Until episode, next episode, Billy Hogan. Well, thank you, Billy. Um. I completely agree with what you were saying about Superman 240. Uh, when he needs to, Kurt Swan can does up his game. Um, unfortunately, sometimes even though he he can up it to modernize, he does sort of slip back more to his comfort level. That's not a bad thing. Yeah, I completely agree with what you said about the art. The Giordano's inks gave it a more modern, sleeker uh, tone to it. Although reading later on, apparently he didn't. Uh, Giordano did not believe he did Swan's pencils justice. Uh, but thank you, uh, thank you, Billy, for writing in. Um, yeah, the Silver Age stories. Uh, if I if I do cover one, it might be because it has something to do with one of the Sil uh, Bronze Age books. But for the most part, I probably won't, just because this is the about the Bronze Age Superman. Uh, no offense, but thank you for uh, giving me the. Uh, option or permission to go ahead and cover that so I will keep definitely keep that in mind so thank you Billy my next email comes from Stephen Morgan uh, and he writes um, well he's a new subscriber from England he writes 
Hi, Charlie. Steve Morgan here, a comics fan since the late 60s. Only came across your podcast last week and immediately downloaded all episodes from iTunes. Wow, I feel bad for you having to listen to me for, let's see, this is February, end of February. Wow, that's probably what, like 13, no, 12, 13 episodes, maybe 11. Wow, I'm sorry you had to hear all that all at once. Uh, no negative comments from me. Uh, I've always enjoyed collecting and reading comic books and reading about them. Anyone that can reach fans with a medium like this, like you're doing, can only be commended. Thank you again, and I'll email again soon. Kind regards, Steve. Well, thank you, Steve. Um, I did respond to his email because I knew it was going to be a few episodes before I actually got to read it on <laughs> on the air. But um, thank you, Steve. It's, it is humbling knowing that uh, people from other parts of the world are listening to this podcast. I've never been on another continent. And from what I've seen, based on uh, where it shows that people have visited my uh, the blogs, uh, the, the web page from, um, I've had visitors from literally all corners of the earth, of the, of the world. And it's a very humbling thing. I've always wanted to go to England, and I would have tried to read that with an English accent. But um, one, um, I didn't want to um, insult you. And two, well, I really, really didn't want to insult you. So uh, thank you for writing in, and I hope you continue to enjoy the episodes uh, now that you've hopefully caught up by this point. Um, uh, thank you, um, and thank you for your support. Uh, the next email is from this guy I've never heard of named Billy Hogan, um, who we're going, I'm going to have to start charging, you know, every time I mention him in an episode. But um, Billy writes again. Charlie, enjoyed the episode as always, and this is in response to episode 14, sorry. Uh, but anyway, enjoyed the episode as always, as well as your co-host Michael Bradley and his podcast, The Threading Adventures of Superman. And I, before I keep going, I want to thank uh, Michael Bradley again for coming on the episode last last time. Uh, it was awesome to have him. We had quite a few technical difficulties at the beginning trying to get this thing recorded. Fortunately, I was able to edit all that stuff out. But... Um, we did get it recorded, and I thought it turned out to be a pretty good episode. It was fun to have him, and I hope he can come back uh, sometime soon. Um, anyway, Billy writes, I appreciate the nod you gave me when you asked if Superman ever kissed Lois to make her forget in a Silver Age story. While this is the era I was introduced to comics, I haven't read a whole lot of them, since my parents didn't have a lot of money to buy comics every time we went to the store. So I'm not aware, as yet, of a Silver Age story where that happened. But in a story I covered in episode 168, that where a descendant of Cersei turned Superman into a lion, the Man of Steel and Lois did kiss twice. The first time was when she took him to a play, Beauty and the Beast. At the end of the story, after he had returned to normal, Superman showed himself to Lois at the Daily Planet office and gave her a big kiss as thanks for her show of affection when his morale was low as Super Lion. I didn't expect much from the story when I saw the cover, but I was surprised at how drawn I, drawn I was. No, I was surprised at how I was drawn into the emotion of the story. You might think it's a typical silver, or it's a typical strange silver age story, but wait until you get into the story where Superman's head was transformed into an ant head. Signed, Billy uh, Billy Hogan, Eustis, Florida. Well, thank you again, Billy. And uh, actually, I have read that ant head story, which is kind of part of my aversion to Silver Age stories, but, um, uh, yes, um, what is it, uh, the All-Star Superman 
DVD. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Um, by the way, go check that out. All-Star Superman. It's a good book and it's a good movie. Um, I'm not going to do a whole bunch of stuff on it because, well, for one, everyone and their mothers are doing that. But also, um, again, I'm covering Bronze Age, so I don't feel like I really should be covering that on this show. But, um, yes, uh, both of those. And for, uh, one of the things Grant Morrison mentioned in one of his special features on that was how the Silver Age, uh, while Superman was at its most powerful, um, well, those stories also had a lot of the heart and a lot of the character. If you can look past the fact that Superman was constantly trying, uh, that Lois was trying, oh, constantly trying to get Superman to marry her and all that stuff. Uh, so some, uh, hearing a story like this t um, mentioned in a way like Billy has t has mentioned it is really cool. Um, I do want to check that out, that one out. Um, but thank you again for writing, Billy. Um, keep this up. You're going to be like my unofficial co-host. Uh, next up um, isn't really an email. I actually have a comment that was left on the Facebook group page uh, for the show uh, in response to episode 213. Or, <laughs> uh, episode 13. And he writes, Hi, Charlie. I've only just discovered your Superman in the Bronze Age, Bronze Age podcast, and I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed listening to this episode. The cover to it, Superman issue 242 is my all-time favorite cover. I can still remember seeing it on the stand in the news at, in the news agent shop where I used to buy comics book, comic books as a boy. Wow, I'm sorry. I'm totally ripping up this thing. I'd been following the story of the sand duplicate Superman and was eager to see how it would conclude. I was not disappointed, and I really enjoyed the exciting conclusion to this tale. Thanks very much for helping me to relive some very happy memories. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Anthony, and welcome to the show. I'm glad you've been. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And um, again, uh, if you've gone back and listened to the other episodes the way that um, uh, Stephen has. And I also apologize to you. So uh, I guess I will move on and uh, play a, a quick promo. And when we come back, we get the next week at World's Finest. Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast, which explores the world of Superman and the many creators who have added to his legacy over the decades. Episodes will feature creator biographies, or highlight some of their top stories they have created as well as their top characters. Other episodes will feature topics appropriate to the holiday or the time of the year. For instance, Valentine's Day will feature stories about the women in Superman's life. April Fool's Day will feature some of the bizarre Superman Silver Age stories or some of the imaginary stories that have been published. Halloween will feature some of the scary Superman stories or some of his strange transformations, and of course, some of the Christmas Superman stories. The website can be found at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com. The blog is supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, and you can send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. I also have a spoiler-free comic book review blog of the titles I read every week, which can be found at mypolllist.blogspot.com, and you can send email about this blog to mypolllist at gmail.com. And we're back. And um, 
our first issue that we're going to cover today is World's Finest, issue one, uh, number 207, cover dated September 9, 1971, with the cover date of November 1971. The cover on this one was by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, and actually looks kind of cool, but um, Batman looks a little off. Not superbly not as bad as sometimes when Swan draws him. Um, he doesn't quite look as like Silver Agey, but um, the ears on the cow look really weird. But I don't know if that could be inking, it could be any number of things. But um, it does look like a pretty cool cover. And it says special. Uh, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> That's one of the. Well, actually, I will tell you that um, one of the backup features features Tarantula, the original web slinger is what it calls it on the cover, so I'll be mentioning that in a little bit. But um, yes, this issue of World's Finest features Superman and Batman. And uh, right into the episode, uh, the story is called A Matter of Light and Death. The writer is Lynn Wein, the artist by Dick Dillon and Joe Gaiella. The editor is Julie Schwartz. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. This story, anyway, was reprinted in Best of DC number 20, which came out in January of 82, or cover dated January of 82, and in Superman, Batman, The Greatest Stories Ever Told, trade paperback, which came out in 2007. So, we start off at Wellman's Gym, an old abandoned gym in the city of Metropolis. Inside, three men, led by a man named Sly, are being hired to perform an important task. The task? kill Superman. The man hiring them? Clark Kent. At first, Sly and his men refuse, since his only weakness, kryptonite, has basically been destroyed. But Clark reminds them that Superman also has a weakness to magic. Sly tells Clark that if he can prove that there's really such a thing as magic, then he will take the, then they will take the job. So Clark disappears. We next see Clark flying at super speed to the top of a world, smashing into either icebergs or a mountain, I'm not really sure, um, to find the Satan staff. When he flies it to Metropolis Park, well, he then flies it to Metropolis Park, hiding it under a boulder. As he begins walking down one of the paths in the park, uh, Clark suddenly gets a strange expression on his face. He suddenly does not know how he got to the park, and begins to worry because this is the third blackout he suffered in the last three days, and he's been having memory-like dreams in which he's involved in someone's murder, but he's not sure who. Realizing he needs to solve this mystery rather quickly, he quickly changes to Superman and goes to the one person who could possibly solve this little mystery, the Batman. After midnight in Gotham City, we see Batman take down a crew of criminals as Superman arrives. After taking them to the police for Batman, Superman returns and brings Batman up to speed on what's been going on. Batman agrees to help and offers to follow Superman around in disguise and keep an eye out for anything out of the ordinary. The next day, using a myriad of disguises, Batman keeps track of Clark all day long, but nothing out of the ordinary seems to occur. Back at Clark's apartment, the heroes begin to discuss what, sh what they should try next when Clark suddenly gets the blank stare on his face. Then backhands Batman across the room and disappears at super speed. Fortunately, Batman had slipped a tracer into Clark's pocket and is soon on the trail. Back at the Wellman gym, Clark presents Sly and his gang with the Satan staff and disappears again just as Batman crashes through the skylight. He roughs up the gang to force them out or to force the info out of them regarding what's going on, but Sly uses the Satan staff to trap the Cape Crusader in a constricting nylon and hemp net. 
which basically squeezes him till he can't breathe and knocks, which knocks him out. At the Metropolis Planetarium, Superman is putting the final touches on a special exhibit of Krypton, completely oblivious to everything that's happened so far that evening. Sly and his gang attack to no avail, until Sly uses the Satan staff to bring a painting of a Kryptonian leech lizard to life, which apparently leeches Superman's energy away, killing him. Sly then encases Superman's body in amber, and they return to the gym to fulfill the contract. Upon arrival, they are confronted by a sudden burst of brilliance that soon takes the form of the evil Dr. Light, who is there to provide them money, uh, or is there to provide the money owed to them for killing Superman. But Sly decides that they don't need his money, because with the Satan staff, they can have all the power in the world. Upset by this betrayal, Dr. Light uses his light gun to disintegrate Sly and his gang. He reaches, for the, he reaches out for the Satan Staff, only to have Batman grab it first. He uses the Satan Staff to attack Light, but since it basically utilizes a light beam, Light is immune to its effect, and Bat, so Batman tries throwing the Satan Staff at him, but Dr. Light just catches it and fades away. At that moment, Superman breaks himself out of the amber, and Batman explains to him everything that's happened, and that while fighting Light, he was actually using the Satan Staff to bring Superman back to life. And it worked. Whew. So Superman follows Light's photon trail to a secret base in the Aurora Borealis, while we see Dr. Light monologuing about how he discovered, while watching a performance by Zatanna, that real magic gives off a faint light energy as it expends itself, and was able to create the Satan Staff to absorb that energy. Then... Tuning in to Superman's unique brainwave patterns, he was able to transmit special light images into Superman's subconscious to convince him that Superman was trying to kill his, his secret alter ego, whoever that may be. Because apparently, while he could do this, he couldn't actually trace to Superman's unique brainwave patterns and find out that you know he was Clark Kent. At that point, Superman busts into Light's base and quickly blasts the Satan staff with heat vision, melting it. Light tries to use his light gun to blast Superman with a light of a red sun, but Superman is able to escape by busting back out of the base before it can cancel out his powers. Then, he busts back in from a different angle, lighting, uh, knocking out Light before he can react. Sometime later, with Dr. Light safely locked away, we see Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne taking a performance by Zatanna, and at this point, we learn that the yoga techniques Batman used to contract his muscles so he could escape from that net left him with bruises that won't heal for weeks. Ha ha. The end. Well, that was a fun story. Um, um, I really, um, th there seems to be a step up here. Uh, well, one, this actually seems more in character for both for both Batman and Superman at the time. Uh, Superman definitely feels like Superman here, and Batman definitely feels like the darker, slightly more brooding, but not as bad as when it was in the 90s, Batman that had been actually appearing in the Batman book. The art to take, seemed to take a step up as well. Dylan finally drew Clark without the spit curl, and this time the, uh, the images of Batman actually look more like the darker Neil Adams version of Batman, than the lighter, more silver agey Carmen Infantino version that we saw during the last appearance. Um, and I have been a fan of Lin Wein for a while, and I really think he did a bang up job uh, with this story. As I said, he wrote Batman a little darker, 
And uh, while he does talk to the criminals while he's fighting crime, there are no puns this time. Uh, and we actually get a mention of something that happened in the Superman book. I think uh, this is the first time anything, any of the events in Superman have actually crossed over to any of the other books that we've been covering. So that was really cool. So overall, I really enjoyed this story. Now, as we know, uh, all the books uh, uh, at this point are still extra sized for only 25 cents. So this story, uh, so this book does have two more stories in it. Uh, the first story is Galloping Gold, uh, featuring the Tarantula who, as I mentioned, uh, is pointed on the cover as the original Web Slinger. The only credit we have for that story is that the art was by Edwin J. Small, Jr., and it's reprinted from Star Spangled Comics number 11 from August of 1942, so it's a Golden Age story. And then the final story is The Cosmic Idiots, reprinted from Strange Adventures number 30 in March 1953. The writer on this one is Sid Gearson. And the art is by Gene Colan and Joe Gaiella. So to, uh, I don't know much about Sid, but I know Gene and Joe are pretty much legends in the comic field, so not bad. Although, I don't know if it's Gaiella's inks or just because Colan uh, was younger and hadn't maybe he hadn't developed a style yet, but the art doesn't look very Colan-esque in that story. So, I'm going to play a promo real quick, and then we'll come back with the next issue. Just who the hell are you? He's James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert! All hands, battle station! What are you scratching at? Incorrect. Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands battle Mondays available the second Monday of every month at two true Presenting Superman. Okay. Superman 244 uh, was released on September 16th, 1971, with a November 71 cover date. And this too has a cover by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. Um, 
which actually looks really cool as well. It's actually, um, I don't know if anyone saw my post on Facebook uh, just a couple of days ago as I record this, but this is actually one of the uh, stories I've, I actually just recently purchased. Um, so I was really lucky to find it at an affordable price and in pretty good condition too. The story is called uh, The Electronic Ghost of Metropolis, and the cover shows an electric ghost that really doesn't look a whole lot like the electric ghost inside, which is kind of interesting considering that it's drawn by the same people. But um, this cover does show Lois and Jimmy on it, which is really cool, and it has a little note for retailers to see text page for special display allowance plan, which I don't know about. Um, because, unfortunately, that page was missing from the copy that I got. Uh, but anyway, um, where was I? Okay, uh, the story, like I said, is The Electronic Coast of Metropolis. The writer is Denny O'Neill, who returns. Uh, art is by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor is Julie Schwartz. Superman, of course, was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this story was reprinted in Best of DC number 56, from uh, cover dated January 1985. So, returning from a mission in the Smoky Mountains, Superman notices that the WGBS building has been enveloped by some kind of strange purple aura. Jimmy calls him in and directs him to one of the studios, which is being torn apart by some kind of an electrical monster. Superman goes on the offensive, but gets knocked out into um, a control room. He regroups and tries another attempt, but this time he just flies through the monster, when suddenly the power goes out, and then just as suddenly returns again, and by, by this time the monster has vanished. Superman flies out, but then returns to a storeroom to investigate further as Clark. As he exits, Morgan Edge tells him that he needs to get all the info he can about the monster for the 6 p.m. telecast. So Clark enters the control room of WGBS's new multi-million dollar computer system, which has been installed at several WGBS stations across the country. After using the computer to discover that the monster is a being made of quark energy, Clark exits the room um, to begin the next telecast, which I thought was strange because Edge was on him to get all the information he could, but apparently the telecast is... Ready is supposed to be going on so soon, so that's kind of. I mean, he's not really asking for much, is he? Um, you'd think Clark was a super reporter or something. <laughs> so during the show, he's given a news bulletin that states that the monster is now attacking a transmission tower. So he throws the show out to the mobile news unit and quickly changes to Superman to deal with the situation. After saving Lois, who was there covering the story already, from falling off of a platform damaged by the monster's attack, uh, and Superman calls her the bravest woman on three continents at this point. Uh, Superman bends a steel girder into a giant boomerang and throws it at the monster. This causes the monster to disappear and the girder to disintegrate. Meanwhile, in a sleazy room in a sleazy part of Metropolis, a man named Teach reveals to his sleazy buddies that they're going to use his, wraith, his wrath razor to make one million dollars. The next morning, Morgan Edge receives a picture of the Wrath, yeah, of the Wrath Razor, creating the monster, and a note stating, "I am the genius responsible for the destruction the city has suffered. I invented a machine to raise demons, ghouls, wraths, and other monsters. Pay me a million in small bills, or regret it." Signed, Teach Dilbert. Sounds scary, huh? So Clark heads out in the mobile newsroom to cover the story. Again, we get another crossover from 
one of the other books. So I'm really liking this little bit of continuity they're putting together here. Uh, noon at the Metropolis River. The mayor, several of his men, and a couple of police officers wait with bated breath, excuse me, fully prepared to turn over the money. Teach and his men show up with the, with the wrath razor, threatening to use the device if they try any funny business. At this point, Superman shows up and reveals that the wrath razor is just an empty box, and after a short gunfight with some great art, uh, Teach and his men are arrested. Also, we learned that the photo that was taken earlier was actually double exposure of the device and a fake wrath. Um, Superman flies off to resume his search for the monster, seeming to forget about, you know, the mobile newsroom and all that stuff. He spots the same purple aura from before, but now it's over a nuclear power plant. Superman races inside, but the monster has already set off a chain reaction in the atomic pile. Tunneling below the atomic furnace, he then takes it up, up, and away into space, where it harmlessly explodes far away from the Earth. Superman then goes to Edge's penthouse to see a map of all the locations of all of the WGBS computer units. As Edge shows Superman, the main computer hub is in a cave under a mountain outside of the city. We see that there is a mysterious figure behind a one-way mirror that desperately needs Superman's help but is unable to communicate to him. And I've mentioned that one before, and I want to say that that room's got sound dampeners so Superman can't hear. So Superman heads out to a mountain and tunnels through to the uh, through to the cave where the computer reveals that it can speak and that the monster is really its child. As Superman tries to shut down the computer, the monster shows up and knocks him around until Superman is able to rip the power cables from the wall shutting down the computer and bringing the end to the monster. However, with the revelation that the monster being is like a child, Superman does not feel very triumphant in his victory. Now, this is what I'm talking about. We get Clark, we get Lois, we get Superman figuring things out, and we get more things crossing over. This issue, we saw the mobile newsroom, in its first appearance outside of Action Comics, and this was a fun Superman story. I still think the art was fantastic. Uh, again, since this is an O'Neill story, uh, the art is a little more packed in this issue. As I mentioned last uh, episode that, uh, with the Carrie Bates story, there seemed to be more room for Swan to uh, stretch out the art a little bit. Um, but uh, even though things seem a little more packed in, there is a little bit of a higher page count to the story, which does help open it up a little bit more. Um, we've seen the stranger behind the mirror before, but it appears there's more of his story that will be taking place elsewhere. And I do plan to follow up on this story in a future episode, so don't worry about that one. It will probably be a special episode where I have to take a break from the Superman books because I believe most of this, uh, most of the rest of that story takes place in uh, the some of the satellite books of like Jimmy and Lois. So, um, and that's it for the main story in Superman. There were two more stories that occurred in this issue. One you may have heard of before, and one that you may not have heard of so much before. Uh, the first one is The Superman of 2465, written by Edmund Hamilton, with art by Kurt Swan and George Klein, and uh, reprinted from Superman number 181 in November of 1965. And, uh, of course, that was also the basis of the one of the Superman when, uh, during the celebration of Superman's 60th birthday. 
where Superman, uh, thanks to Dominus, actually existed in four different time eras. Uh, Man of Steel had him in the Golden Age. Action Comics had him in the Bronze Age. Adventures of Superman had him in the Silver Age. And, of course, the regular Superman book had him at, in the future with Superman 2465. So that, so, and that's a really cool story. Um, both the original version and, of course, the stuff done later. Definitely make sure you check those out. Uh, the second story is called The Lady of the Tiger Man, which is a Captain Comics story reprinted from Strange Adventures number 34, uh, cover dated July 1953. The writer on that one was John Broom, and the art was done by Murphy Anderson. So, that's that, and after a few more promos, we've got one more book to cover. Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast, Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second. Hey there, webheads. 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed. And to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies. And what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time. So strap yourself in, and here's the hosts. This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work. Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why, no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio. A new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. 
featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Man of Steel, and an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. sky it's a bird it's a plane no it's supermanhomepage.com the number one superman fan site in the world supermanhomepage.com covering the world of superman from the 1930s to today news reviews rumors and reports supermanhomepage.com for all your superman comics tv shows movies cartoons radio shows and more everything you ever wanted to know about the man of steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine. Okay, Action Comics number 406. Again, cover dated November 1971 with a September 1930... Wow, September 1930. Mm. September 30th, 1971 cover date uh, with another cover by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. So obvious. So it's really cool that they were able to do the covers on all the issues this month. Uh, and this time the cover actually covers the backup story, which is kind of weird. So I'll mention it a little bit more when I get to the backup story. The first story in this book is actually called The Master of Miracles, right? written by Leo Dorfman. Art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor, of course, is Murray Boltonoff. With Superman reprinted by, or created, wow, Superman created by Jerry Sickle and Joe Schuster. And of course, as we've been noticing a lot with some of these action comic stories, um, this story has not been reprinted. So, in what appears to be the waiting room to Morgan Edge's office, Clark is given the assignment of looking into the communes that have been sweeping the country by investigating the Sanctuary, which has been recruiting the country's most brilliant scientists. Heading out west in the mobile news van, Clark scopes things out with his telescopic vision, only to see a bus full of pilgrims and a bus trapped in a street in a stream bed and in the path of a flash flood. So, switching to Superman, he quickly flies uh, flies in, picks up the bus, and flies off with it. But one man has stayed behind. Superman is then shocked when with just one wave of his hand, this man, known as the Master, not the one from Doctor Who or the Venture Brothers, freezes the floodwaters. The Master then welcomes the pilgrims to the sanctuary. Joining the pilgrims by swift, quickly switching to Clark, the Man of Steel enters the commune and joins everyone else in picking up all the trash inside. Piling up all of the glass bottles that have been collected, the Master uses his power to melt down all the glass and then transforms it into a giant glass dome, explaining that the dome will protect everyone from the pollution that has doomed the outside world. While he welcomes all inside, he tells Clark that he isn't welcome. Excuse me. He tells Clark that he isn't welcome, reveals that he knows that Clark is Superman, and uses his profit power to point out a job for Superman a trainload of poisonous gas trapped in a forest fire. Superman quickly flies off using a train car full of liquid carbonite. Uh, liquid carbonite. <laughs> Sorry, I was listening to Two True Freaks a little bit ago. Anyway, Superman flies off using a train car full of liquid carbon dioxide to put out the fire, although it causes more pollution. 
Superman then heads to the fortress to use his hypercomputer to find out more about the master. He's interrupted by an alarm by Candor, asking for him asking for him to help with their census analyzer, which has been on the fritz since his last visit a few weeks ago. This kind of ticks off Superman because he's too busy to deal with something like that. So he fires a blackout ray at the Bottle City to cut off communications. He then gets an emergency call about the noise level of a new jetliner shattering every window in Metropolis. Heading out at super speed, Superman uses the remains of a derelict fleet of ship liners to build a floating jet port for the jets to land on in the, in the uh, I guess, Metropolis Harbor. After pointing out more pollution, Superman heads back to the sanctuary to see that the, ma that the Master has used old plastic containers uh, and used them to create a hall of learning before witnessing the Master walk out onto a lake of molten steel. While Superman works to prevent the others from following him onto the Molten Lake, the Master instantly transforms it into a monumental pyramid. Superman offers to put the Master's sandals on and then is, and kneels down before him, and then is ushered into the Hall of Learning with all of the others by the Master. Inside, everything starts shaking, and some force keeps just about everybody except for Superman stuck in their seats. The Master explains that his people brought some prim primitives called Homo sapiens from a dying world to Earth so that they may continue to live. Over time, these primitives rose to power and made many significant accomplishments, but also uh, brought about plagues, disease, war, and pollution. In fact, in three days, the massive amounts of pollution will cause a chain reaction to wipe out all life on the planet. Those inside the hall have been chosen to be taken to another world and start over. Superman doesn't like what's going on and exits the hall to see that the dome, hall, and pyramid have been combined into a giant rocket. Much like you would see uh, Transformers or Voltron or Power Rangers or Super Sentai before that. Superman then confronts the Master, who he knows is a phony because his sandals are made of Cerveron a Kandorian plastic. The Master explains that his real name is Vantar, a Kandorian scientist who envied Superman and his powers. After damaging the census analyzer, uh, see how it all comes together, uh, he slipped out, unknown, uh, of the city as Superman ended his last visit. He then used his powers for some of his miracles and polarizing beads that he had invented to create the three structures. At that point, he uses the beads to cause the quote-unquote rocket to lift off, but there is an overload feedback, causing the beads to actually drain his powers from him. Superman saves the rocket, releases those inside, who conveniently, because we're almost at the end of the story, overheard everything so that they don't have to worry about explaining it all to them again, and then Superman returns Vantar to Kandor. Later, Superman returns to Metropolis with another mention of Earth's pollution, and then returns to WGBS to turn in the story. Unfortunately, all he has for proof of this story is the polarizing beads, which dissolve when Edge tries to activate them, thanks to Superman booby-trapping them so that only, some, uh, only a Kryptonian could have used them. And that's the end of that story. Um, this story seemed a bit heavy-handed on the pollution plot, uh, like almost like it should have been a, some kind of Save Our Earth special or something. But I actually looked this up and found out a, a possible reason. Um, 
as you know, um, there was an energy, somewhat of an energy crisis going on at this point, which is, uh, which has been mentioned before, uh, sort of under the radar. Uh, but you know, the whole kryptonite engine from over in Superman and stuff like that. Um, but I also found out that around this time, just uh, not long before the story was published, probably around the time they would have been working on plotting it, um, Canada had um, passed a Clean Air Act in 1970, and the U.S. National Environmental Policy Act of 1970 also was passed, and that's, that actually took effect in January of 71. So a combination of those two would have probably brought uh, the fact of the idea of the whole air pollution thing more into public consciousness, which would have made it more uh, of a reason to put it in the story. So I could totally see that happening. It makes a lot of sense. I know there are several stories uh, right around when they started doing Earth Day in the early 90s uh, that also dealt with it, um, both with some Batman books and actually some specials that were released. So. Uh, it was heavy-handed, but I can kind of understand why. Um, the Master, or Vandar, is drawn and actually set up to look a lot like Jesus. Uh, he's got long hair, beard, he wears robes, and a bit of a cape, wears sandals, prophet power, uh, can perform these miracles. Uh, of course, before we know he's Kryptonian. So, um, that, that was interesting. Although, we do get more evidence, of course, that heat vision is invisible and even in the pre-crisis era as well as super breath apparently so i guess it just shows that for the most part it's drawn for uh, artistic effect i guess uh the art on this was great though the pencils and inks are really starting to mesh well uh even that the uh, considering that the story forced several small panels in the per page in order to fit it all in um also the new Jetliner that is drawn that is causing all the problems um, looks a lot like the Concorde, which was still in the, the test flight stages in '71. But I know that they there was lots of problems with that because it was supersonic and did make a lot of noises, and that's why it was later discontinued in uh, the '90s or early 2000s. So I found that to be interesting. Uh, so a lot of modern stuff for the time, even though a lot of it wasn't really going on, but uh, Concorde was in its test flying, test flying stages in 71, so that was pretty cool. Um, I like how, um, I didn't mention this before, and I, I apologize, I meant to mention it when I read it, uh, when I did the review and I forgot it again, but um, when uh, Superman switches to Clark to join the commune, um, everyone's wearing robes, and everyone's got a little belt, looks like a bathrobe belt. Clark actually uses his Superman costume as his belt, and it actually is shown that way um, it's the only one, well, he's the only one with a belt colored red, yellow, and blue. Well, actually, with any color besides the purplish gray for the robe. But it's colored red, yellow, and blue. There's actually a couple panels where you can swear you see part of the S. And then, of course, when it's actually revealed, when the master reveals that he knows he's Superman and takes it off and shows off the costume, I thought, I mean, I was like, wow, it really did. That was pretty cool. I actually liked that part. Um... I'm not sure about Superman having a hypercomputer. Uh, I could have sworn everywhere else it's usually referred to as a supercomputer. Um, Vartox, who is uh, has hyperpower, should have the hypercomputer. Um, 
Leo Dorfman should know this. Boltanoff should know this. I don't know how that slipped through, but maybe if you're running behind and you're just kind of looking real quick through it, that can slip through. But anyway. Um, that and the floating jet port that Superman makes would be really cool if we really ever see it again. I don't believe we ever do. Um, I do recall several stories that take place at Metropolis Airport, but I don't recall it being on the water. But if we see it, I will be so happy. Um, I did think it was out of character for Superman to cut off communications with Candor. So basically, um, I don't know how long, if that was a temporary blackout ray. It doesn't say it's a temporary ray. But um, basically, if there's any trouble, now they can't communicate with him. No. I don't, I don't really see Superman doing that. That's way out of character for him. Um, and uh, I would, in fact, I would see him calmly explaining uh, he will help them when he can. He's in the middle of something pretty big right now, and he will help them as soon as he can. I mean, I can understand. I don't know why they would make it an emergency calling for it. It was almost like, we need a way to make this plot to put this in the plot so it's not just coming out of nowhere. So let's do it real quick. So anyway, and um, well, one thing we're not told at the end of the story is whether Vantar is going to have to face any of the consequences for his actions. Um, I would imagine he will, uh, since he's since no one's supposed to leave Kandor. That's a Kandorian law that's been broken. And uh, all sorts of other fun stuff. But yeah, we don't actually see him get any punishment or anything um, and uh, action comics is a weird thing where they actually do uh, the reprint story before the backup story that is before the new backup story so uh, our backup story is uh, actually it's interesting what they did on this as well the back uh, the reprint story is the challenge of the expanding world starring the atom and the Flash, reprinted uh, from Brave and the Bold number 53, cover dated April May 1964, written by Bob Haney and art by Alex Toth, who, as many of you know, um, would end up uh, working with Hanna Barbera to do um, designs for such cartoons. And there's plenty more, I'm sure, that I'm not gonna, I'm gonna forget to mention. But I do know he did a Space Ghost, uh, Scooby Doo. Super Friends, and uh, several others. Um, but what they did was, uh, this story in Brave and the Bold 53 was actually, I don't know if it was a super full-length, full-issue story, or at least uh, long enough to cover two parts of the books. Um, so basically what happened is they cover half the story in this issue of action, and the other half of that same story will appear in the next issue, uh, basically taking a, a story that was told in one issue and splitting it into two issues. Kind of makes, makes me think of like uh, when a TV show does a season premiere, a special two-hour season premiere event, and then when they do the reprints, the reprints, the repeats later on in the season, uh, they break it up into two one-hour episodes so that um, it fits in the normal time and they don't have to do a special two-hour block again. It's kind of what they've done here. So I thought that was interesting. I didn't know they ever did that. Um, so that's some, I thought that was something cool to learn. 
Now, the backup story uh, is called The Ghost That Haunted Clark Kent, and it's actually the subject of the cover of the issue, which does show uh, a, fa a phantom Superman carrying his head while Clark is watching along with some other person. So um, I remember I first saw that when I was reading uh, Superman 30s to the 80s, and that that cover always stuck with me, and I just always wanted to know exactly what was behind that story, and now I'm going to find out. So, uh, like I said, it's called The Story that, uh, the Ghost That Haunted Clark Kent. The writer is Jeff Brown, a.k.a. Leo Dorfman. Art is by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. Editor is Murray Boltonoff. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and it's reprinted in Best of DC number 38. One night, at the fabled Tower of London, Guards spot a headless phantom, hoping to catch it on film. They call for Clark Kent, who just happens to be uh, there for a TV special about London. Coincidental? I think not. When he catches up to the phantom, it turns out to be a headless Superman phantom. Feigning fear, Clark runs off, but uses his X-ray vision to follow the phantom into a sealed room, where the phantom mysteriously solidifies. Wanting a closer look, Clark switches to Superman, and the Man of Steel crashes into the room, confronting the Phantom, who actually looks like a living mummy. Explaining how he came to be this way, the Phantom reveals that his name is Dr. Magnus, the King's royal physician 300 years ago in the year 1665, when the plague had arrived in London. He was experimenting with a possible cure using some rare ingredients, and decided to test it on himself. For several days, he se it seemed to work as he never caught the plague from the patients he was treating. But then one day, he became racked with fever, but instead of dying, he actually turned into a body of the specter. Soon, he became solid again and decided to return to treating his patients because he felt fine. But the next morning, all, sevens of the, all seven of patients that he had been treating that morning died, even though some of them didn't have the plague. Realizing that it was his fault, he begged the guards to actually kill him to, you know, save the rest of the city from whatever he has. Um, but when they tried to attack him with their guns and uh, knives and swords, eh, he just becomes ghost-like. And he learns that no mortal weapon can actually kill him. So he's sealed off into a room in the tower. And over the course of the next 300 years... Uh, learns how to change into a phantom at will, uh, which sometimes allows him to explore the area around the tower, seeing times change, the people change, the styles change. But that night, he had spotted Clark doing his special, and his spectral telepath power uh, revealed that he was Superman. So he acted as a headless super phantom to get Clark's attention, with the idea that Superman could somehow use his superpowers to kill him, because they're not mortal somehow. So Superman, um, of course, refuses to actually outright kill the guy because of his moral code, which Magnus understands because his moral code was, is also to help people whenever possible. So he asks Superman to at least uh, repair the cracks that he made when he burst into the room so that um, whatever, whatever plague he's got does not, you know, escape, even though there should be a giant hole in the side of the wall, but I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so Superman decides to start using his heat vision to seal some of the cracks on the far wall. 
but Dr. Magnus worries that he might damage some of the parabolic mirrors that he has pretty much up against that wall, um, but she's using in a transmutation experiment. So he goes to, I guess, try to move the mirrors or something, but he gets too close to the heat rays, and they're accidentally reflected by the mirrors, and he ends up getting a heat flash, which ends up killing him, actually. Um, so Superman, saddened, but noting that this was just an accidental death and doesn't count, um, leaves the tomb, resealing the doctor for all eternity. And that's the end of the story. Um, the story was eh, but the art was really good. Um, first of all, I don't think Superman would have been that reckless with his heat vision. I think that he probably would have moved the mirrors or gotten a little closer so he could be more precise with his heat vision than standing basically on these, across the room. Also, it was weird because he's standing there warning the doctor about getting too close to the mirrors, but he doesn't turn off his heat vision. I don't know if it was stuck on or what, but he just he doesn't mention any. He just says, don't do that. You might get hurt, but that's it. Doesn't turn it off. Um, uh, like I said, there's a giant hole in the wall. So this whole time, I guess they're letting plague stuff escape. So hopefully Superman takes care of that after the story ends. Um, and we only know this because, well, one, he made a hole in the wall. And second, he's sealing that hole back up at the end of the story. Mm -hmm. um, obviously the room wasn't airtight or you know the guy wouldn't be able to breathe although if he was invulnerable maybe he wouldn't have to breathe uh, or immortal maybe he wouldn't have to breathe I don't I don't know um, but also um, I would think that this would also mean that Superman would have to decontaminate himself now just saying um, also, this goes by the same the same theory that's used in Superman 2, uh, in which Superman's heat vision can, or the Kryptonian's heat vision can actually be reflected by a mirror. Uh, personally, uh, I don't know. I would imagine that if you're using heat vision to melt rock, um, you're probably going to melt through the mirror. Some of it could be reflected, but I would think it would pass through it before it could be reflected. It's just my thought. I don't know. Um, but again, this is comic book science or comic book movie science, so it can't really go by any of that. And that's it for this month on the books. Um, I thought uh, November '71 was actually a pretty good month to be a Superman fan. Um, definitely worth checking out the books. Speaking of checking out the books, um, let me pull up the DC indexes. Uh, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, and uh, let's see what else was going on in the DC Universe that month. As we look at November 1971 cover dated books, which all came out in September. Uh, first up, we have DC Special number 15, uh, featuring Plastic Man. Uh, with it's a 48-page book for 25 cents, and we get the origin of Plastic Man, uh, the man who can't be harmed, Plastic Man products, the magic cup, and a woozy wings story, Blado or Blado the hypnotist. Um, and apparently that's his origin too. So that should that's probably a pretty good book, I would imagine. We have our our army at war number 238, Wonder Woman number 197. This is a reprint issue 
featuring the story that was was printed in Wonder Woman 181. I don't know why they've done that so soon. 16 issues later, reprint the story that maybe this is getting ready to come back to when Wonder Woman gets her powers back. But um, basically all it is is the reprint of issue number 181 where Wonder Woman lost her powers or gave up her powers. So, yeah, that's interesting. We have Ghosts, number two, with a very moody-looking cover by Nick Cardi. And I'm, I'm loving the, the fact that these, even, though, even with the somewhat primitive um, art processes that they had in the 70s, we're still, uh, the moody covers are still so cool-looking. That's just really awesome. Uh, we have Our Fighting Forces, number 134, featuring the Losers. We have Jimmy Olsen, number 143, featuring the conclusion to the uh, Transylvania story, which you can read more about. It's Man Homepage's pre-crisis classic um, reviews. Um, we have Son of Tomahawk, number 137, which actually has not a, a pretty interesting-looking Joe Kubert cover, although the woman on the cover looks like she could do some stomach crunches. We have Batman number 236, featuring the Whale of the Ghost Bride. And let's see, we have Falling in Love number 126, uh, uh, featuring a new Dream Man contest, and also How to Get a Man to Love. Uh, we have Flash number 210 which apparently features President Lincoln being assassinated in the year 2971. Yeah. So Flash goes to the 30th century. That's cool. Um, no mention of a legion, though. Uh, Justice League of America, number 94. Um, and it's pretty cool. We have a similar story from before, but we actually... Well, not well, maybe not justly. We get an interesting story where it looks like a strange creature is going to uh, take control of Aquaman's body, and he he or she is telling everyone that um, anyone who tries to stop him will die. Now, it's very possible, judging by the cover. I don't know, but it's very possible, just judging by the cover, that this is a dead man's story. Uh, let's see. And it ah, looks like it is. Whew, I read that right. So yes, it's a dead man appears in Justice League, probably for the first time. We also get secret origin stories of Sandman and and the original Starman uh, reprinted. So that's pretty cool. Uh, World's Finest, which we've already been over. Uh, Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love, number two, which has a really moody, uh, really cool uh, Joe Orlando cover. I like that one a lot. Phantom Stranger number 16, which features a weird-looking Neil Adams cover. We have Mr. Miracle number 5, uh, with featuring Dr. Vandabar's murder machine, and also Vic Barda's in there. And there's also a Boy Commando story in there, so that's pretty cool. Uh, let's see, we get Superman, we get Young Romance number 176. How to Get the Man You Want. Yay. We get House of Mystery, number 196, with the Tony Day Zanuga cover. And 
that looks actually kind of interesting. Looks like they're about to kill a dog. And uh looks like a whole bunch of dark magic sacrifice stuff, but these two kids um wearing outfits that make them look like they're from the forties, maybe. Uh are they're hiding like they're gonna save the dog. So that'd be interesting. Um we get Teen Titans number thirty six. Um with um another cool Nick Cardi cover with one person's actually turning to dust. It's a hunchback guy. And it also has the story uh, uh, reprinted of how Superboy met Robin the Boy Wonder. We have Superman's Girlfriend, number 116, um, which actually has a very weird-looking cover. Uh, Superman's in front of a trick mirror, and somehow it's act the effect on the mirror is actually happening to him in real life. Um, looks like a very silly kind of... Silver Age, but also some parts of the Bronze Age cover. Who knows what's going on there? We have Weird War Tales number two. Um. Aww. and um, actually shows a Western Union Telegraph talking about how the army is regretting to inform the death of somebody from a young girl who apparently just had that in a dream or something. Anyway, pretty cool looking story. We have Young Love number 79 with some people wearing some really far out outfits. You would think this looks, actually it looks like some of the stuff you would see being drawn for the future. Um, asking the question, are you a man killer? Oh, and the blonde one on that cover is pretty uh, busty if I may say so myself. Um, Girls Love, How to Lose Weight in a Hurry, uh, which apparently is the beginning of purging. Uh, we have Strange... I'm just kidding. Sorry. Strange Adventures, number 233, uh, featuring several stories, apparently reprints. And let's see. Superboy, number 179. Uh, featuring somehow, uh, apparently, Superboy melting everybody into nothing. Uh, and we actually see people melting. It's actually kind of cool looking. Strange. Uh, we have Unexpected, number 129. We have Adventure Comics, number 412. The Supergirl in another weird looking costume. This one's a full body costume, though. Uh, her boots look like the boots she'll be wearing about the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Didn't know what happens there. Um, she's got a belt with a Superman S on it. It's slightly different, but it kind of has the same feeling of the Superman Returns belt. Um, and ironically, she looks nothing like the little picture of Supergirl up in the corner. She's also wearing gloves. And yeah, so we're still going through the Supergirl keeps changing her clothes. Um, we have Detective Comics number 417 featuring uh, some guy who's Batman for a night. I'm not sure how that works. Uh, and it has a Batgirl story called A Bullet for Gordon. And while I'm thinking of that, um, make sure you guys, if you aren't already, check out uh, Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. I've been wanting to check it out for a while, but never got around to it. And recently got to check it out. And it is a lot of, it's a lot of fun. It's a really upbeat uh, show hosted by Stella, who also is on uh, the Spider-Man Crawl Space podcast 
and she's basically covering all of the Barbara Gordon stories, uh, starting at the beginning. All the ones where she actually has an active role, not these little stories where she just plays like has a cameo with the back of her head. But she's covering basically all of the Barbara Gordon stories from the beginning to to just about the present, but also covering uh, the current ongoing Batgirl comic starring Stephanie, can't think of her last name off the top of my head, um, who used to be Spoiler and is now the current Bat, uh, Batgirl in current continuity. Um, so make sure you guys check out that um, that episode. Um, it's a really good show. There's a link to it in my recommended site section of the Superman and blog, Superman and the Bronze Age blogspot.com. Um, so I highly recommend you check that out. The first three uh, episodes are not available on iTunes. You have to kind of get them directly from her site. But the rest of the show is on iTunes if you want to get them from there or you can get them from her site. But it's a really fun show, uh, really upbeat. And um, each episode she comes up with some crazy weird gag for a sponsor, and they are hilarious. So make sure you check that out. And um, now that i finished plugging, her show, her show. Uh, the final uh, one is called Heartthrobs, which I think this is the first one we've ended on a romance comic. Um, Ten things to do if you're losing your man. But it's got an interesting cover by Art Saf. And again, I don't know if people were really wearing this stuff. Um, basically, I've been reading, you know, I read the superhero stuff where everyone's wearing suits or, co or superhero costumes. So maybe this is. But these are some weird-looking outfits. This one guy's wearing a shirt with a that has a belt on the shirt, but not the pants. Uh, uh, it's weird. And then the guy's got clothes where the shirt doesn't doesn't look like it has buttons, but goes down to just about the top of where a six-pack would be. And the woman actually is wearing something I might have actually seen in the 70s before, but not much clothing at all. It, I don't know. These, these, all three, um, four, all several of these romance comics, people wear some weird clothes in those things. Um, but then again, it was early 70s, so who knows? But anyway, that's it for this month. Um, I want to thank you guys again for listening. And uh, next month, we're going to have a few more comics. I believe three issues next month again. And I, I would also like to reiterate, um, if you liked last episode, um, and would like to join in, uh, please uh, email me at umbc81 at gmail.com, and uh, we can set something up for you to come on and join the fun. And I want to thank again Michael Bradley for joining me last episode. You are welcome back anytime, Michael. And, um, yep, so that's it, and um, thank you for listening, and you all have a good day. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where new episodes are posted weekly. Episodes are also posted at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com and supermanhomepage.com. You can also subscribe to this show via RSS feed and iTunes. All images, characters, and music used in the show are for entertainment purposes only. No money is made by the show. Superman is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Superman is also a copyrighted feature appearing in Superman DC publications.